know that the Lord forgives us, he restores us, and then he says, I want to talk with you. He wants to speak to us. And so let us turn to, first of all, you know, we're going to uh, continue our series on Luke, Luke 4, 14 through 30. But before we go there, let's go to Leviticus, Libya, Leviticus 25, Pachi, Leviticus 25, verses 1, 2, and 3. Sorry, it shouldn't be 1, 2, and 3. It should be 8, 9, and 10, not 1, 2, and 3. 8, 9, and 10. Libya, or Leviticus 25, 8 through 10. This is a bit of a background to um, Jubilee. You say, well, Jubilee, what is Jubilee? And it's in the Old Testament, and it's also in Luke 4. The word isn't, but we're going to see how Jesus fulfills Jubilee. Jubilee is every 50 years, but when Jesus came, there's no every 50 years. It's all the time. And um, so Le uh, Leviticus 25, 8, 9, and 10. Let's read those words. We could read the rest of the chapter, but it's a fairly long chapter. But if we just get a bit of a sense of what the Lord says here. The year of Jubilee, verse 8. And you shall count seven Sabbaths. So it means seven Saturdays or seven Saturdays of rest of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. So seven times seven is 49. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. So jubilee was the year of release, or you could say freedom, as we're going to see. And then if you go to Luke chapter 4. You see, Jesus is our jubilee because he's the one who announces freedom in himself, true freedom, freedom from slavery and so forth. Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. So this is after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He defeated Satan. And now he has his, you could say, his inaugural sermon, his first sermon in Nazareth, where he was grown up. And usually in your first sermon, you're saying, this is what the Lord has set forth for me to do. And that's his task. And we read that in Luke chapter 4. Let's begin with verse 14. We hear the word of God. Then Jesus returned, that means from the wilderness, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up to read, and he was handed the book, or you could say the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb of me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Then he said, Surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, rose up and thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill, you could see to the cliff on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. I love verse 30. <laughs> there you see the triumph of Christ, right? And the Lord has his way. So we're going to be uh, focusing, really verse 21, I think that fits well with uh, uh, Leviticus 25, but verse 21 will be our focus. And he began saying to them, today, this scripture, that's the scripture of Isaiah 61, just about, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, yeah, you may be asking, what do you mean by jubilee? I mean, the, the word, of course, is not even in the passage. It's not even in Luke 4. But it is in Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 55. It's, the whole rest of the chapter talks about the year of jubilee. And what which Jesus wishes to show here is that he is the jubilee. That year is now fulfilled in him, uh, and that is forever. You know, think of jubilee. What, what words do you think of when you hear jubilee? Think of joy, right? That word joy is closely connected with jubilee, or jubilation, right? Celebration. That's all connected with the year of jubilee. As a matter of fact, in Old Testament Israel, among God's people, how would they announce the year of jubilee? They used a ram's horn, and they would whoop, and that horn would just blow throughout the whole land. It was the announcement, the year of Jubilee has come. Seven times seven, 49, and the year after was the year of Jubilee, the completion, the number seven, 
right? It's a number of completion, number of fulfillment. And of course, Christ is the ultimate jubilee. He's the jubilee. But every 50th year was to be a time of celebration, time of rejoicing, a time to, to rest for God's people. So what happened in that year? Well, in the Old Testament, it was a year full of releasing, releasing people from their debts. You know, sometimes they owed many debts, so they were freed from those debts. Okay, they released all slaves, so the slaves were set free. And if property was taken because someone couldn't make their payments, that was all returned back to the original owners. Okay, it was a year of freedom, a year of release. Okay, so during that year, the land was not to be planted with crops, no vegetables, no crops. The land was supposed to lay fallow. Everyone was to rest that year. It was a time where people could return to their families and be restored to their families and loved ones. Jubilee here in Leviticus is a picture. Think of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is so important to understanding the New Testament. Both are very important. It's all God's word. And Jubilee finds its fulfillment in whom? It's a picture of the greater Jubilee to come. Jesus. What does he deliver us from? What does he free us from? The greater debt. The greater debt of our sin. And he delivers us from the power of Satan. We know that by our sin in Adam, we made ourselves, all the human race made ourselves captive to Satan. We need deliverance. And if you look at Luke chapter 4, remember, Jesus has just defeated Satan in the wilderness. And now Jesus announces, okay, I've defeated him. Now you're going to find your freedom from the power of sin, from the power of Satan. You're going to find that freedom in me. And he announces that freedom. And at center of this freedom is the fact that we're freed from Satan's power. I like Michael Card. Maybe most of us probably don't know who Michael Card is, but he has a lot of songs from the, from the Bible. But he has a song called Jubilee. And he says it this way. And I think he probably refers to this passage. In his voice, that means in the voice of Jesus, what do we hear? A trumpet sound. Think of the ram's horn. We hear a trumpet sound that tells us we are free. He is the incarnation of the year of Jubilee. He's the, he's the year of Jubilee in the flesh. Jesus is that Jubilee. Debts forgiven. Slaves set free. Jesus is our Jubilee. And if you look very carefully in that passage... In Luke chapter 4, verse 19, he mentions here the acceptable year of the Lord. That refers to that year of Jubilee. That's the favorable year of the Lord. It refers to the Jubilee year, the year of freedom, the year of release, the year of redemption. And in verse 21, Jesus says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. That's today too for us. It's fulfilled in your hearing. So what do we see? Well, in Nazareth, we're going to see three things. The announcement of Jubilee. Okay, you see that in verses 16 to 22. The announcement. 
And then we see the people of Nazareth rejecting Jubilee, 23 to 29, the rejection of Jubilee. And then finally, who triumphs in all of this? Jesus, verse 30. That is such a powerful verse. He's a triumph of Jubilee. So look at verse 16. We read in verse 16 that Jesus went to his own hometown. You know, where did you grow up? Right? Well, that's where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up in the town, not Bethlehem. That's where he was born. But where was he raised? He was raised under Joseph and his mother Mary. And he was, you could say, the homegrown boy of Nazareth. That's where he grew up. And when he started his ministry, he didn't right away begin in Nazareth because everybody knew him, but there were other reasons. But when he started his ministry, he went to Capernaum first. That was his headquarters of his ministry. It's also in Galilee. And that's when the news about Jesus started spreading everywhere. All kinds of things were being reported about him, good things. And he was teaching in the synagogues in the area. And it says there in verse 15, and they all glorified him. So there was a general fervor of excitement of what Jesus was teaching. And then we read in verse 16, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now we should be really, really clear. The synagogue was the church in that day. Don't confuse it with the synagogue of today. The synagogue of today is very Jewish. It's, it's not Christian. But back then, it was the place of worship. It was the, you could say, the, the, the forerunner of the church. It was a place where God's people met together. It was an assembly like this where they would worship the Lord. The church had yet not begun, but the church would be the fulfillment of the synagogue. Well, that's where Jesus goes. It was a place of worship. Notice that it was his custom. What's a custom? A custom is something that you do regularly, like eating. You eat breakfast or you eat lunch, supper. That's a custom. You don't even necessarily think about it, except when you're sick, you don't eat. But otherwise, it's a custom. Well, that was Jesus' custom, to meet regularly for worship. And you notice this? One misses out on a blessing if he stays away from church, unless he's sick, Right? Sometimes when we're sick, we don't eat breakfast either, right? We don't eat food. But it's kind of like food, eating food, right? Um, you miss out on a blessing if you stay away from church. It's not a blessing for the church if you stay away from church. And it's not a blessing for the kingdom. It was Jesus' custom just to worship every Sabbath, every day of rest, to meet together with God's people. And notice here, now, the homegrown boy of Nazareth, he's that distinguished guest. He comes into the synagogue, and he's invited to be the speaker for the day. He's invited to preach. And we read here, he stood up to read. Again, they would be, he stood up to read. And why did he stand up? Well, standing was the posture for reading the Bible. It was a posture of respect. Anytime that People would read the word of God. They would stand as a way of showing respect to the word of God. So that's what Jesus did here. Okay, and from verse 17, we read that Jesus was given this scroll. It would have been in a scroll. Every, every book had its own individual scroll. 
He was given the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens the scroll. They don't tell him what to preach on. He finds the text. He turns to the text in Isaiah, that text from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This is in his inaugural sermon. It's his very first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. And this is what he reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 from the Old Testament. And also Isaiah 58, verse 6. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Remember when his anointing took place? At his baptism. He's equipped. Right? To do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice how often he says, to preach, to preach, to preach. That's the means that God uses to free people. The word of God, preaching the word of God. Preach, preach, preach. Right? That's, uh, that's the meaning there. He reads it, and then he rolls up the scroll, and he gives it back to the attendant and sits down. Why does he sit down? Does that mean he's all finished? All done? Amen. No. Now comes the preaching part. Because in those days, when you sat down, that means now you started preaching. So it would be kind of like me, okay, I'm going to sit down now because I'm going to preach. That was the posture of authority. Reading? The word of God standing up was a posture of respect. Posture of authority was to sit down. So Jesus sat down. He's ready to preach. He's done reading scripture. He's ready to give his sermon. And there's a pause. Quiet. All is quiet. And before Jesus begins, you know, you can imagine there's a lot of people. They want to hear this distinguished homegrown boy. They want to hear him. And it says there, the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So you can just imagine, they're just intent. They're fixated on the person of Jesus. Really, we should be fixated on the person of Jesus, right? Every time we hear his word, we should be, our, our, our eyes should be fixed on him. And he begins his very first words in his sermon are verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, right? He doesn't get into stories right away. He says, this is it. It's all about me. I've come to blow the horn. I've come to, and my voice is the trumpet, the trumpet sound. He says, the great, in this saying, okay, this saying is fulfilled, the scripture is fulfilled in my, in, in your hearing. What he's saying is the great year of Jubilee is begun in me. In my coming, the release to the slaves of sin, freedom to the captives of Satan, recovery of sight to the blind, healing for the brokenhearted, liberty for the oppressed. What a savior we have. And you read the rest of the book of Luke and you see this theme of Jubilee being unfolded in every miracle, in every sermon, in every teaching of in every parable you see him coming to bring the good news to the brokenhearted to the poor right bringing the news of salvation the good news today says jesus that says for us today too 
today. He announces the good news. Debts forgiven. Talk about sin, of course. Sin forgiven. Debts forgiven. Slaves set free. Christ blows the horn. And you know, this passage, this really should be the blueprint for our nation, Canada, for our land today. This is where true freedom is found. This is where we're going to be released from slavery. Oh, the slavery in our land is just awful. Awful. There's so much slavery. Slavery to our passions and slavery to money. The love of money. It's just making people so sad. The empty eyes, the empty looks. No, this passage, this is the charter of freedom. What Jesus gives, this should be proclaimed as it was throughout Israel, throughout all the land. Hey, premier, prime minister, this is the charter for freedom. Jesus himself is the jubilee. Oh, Jesus, the anointed one is set is sent to set you free from your sin. You know the biggest slavery? People talk about slavery a lot. It's terrible. But the most terrible slavery is when you're enslaved to your sinful passions and to sin itself, because then that means we're captive to Satan. There's no worse slavery in the world. The world talks about slavery, but that's not the worst of it. That's only, you could say, the outworking of a worse slavery. Slavery to sin. That's what Jesus has come to. He's come to break it, to break that power of sin. And he says, and I have come to restore fellowship with God, to bring you into rest. That comes through Jesus. John 8, remember what Jesus says there? If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, the people of Nazareth, they're hearing this, this passage fulfilled in Jesus. And the question is, this assembly, or that assembly in Nazareth, do they see their blindness? Do they see that they need their eyes open? Do they see their slavery, slavery to sin? Is there a broken heartedness among themselves? Is there weeping because they realize that there is so much sin? Or are they just not even thinking about it and maybe justifying themselves. Do they see their need for Jesus? Do they see their need for Jubilee to free them from sin and Satan? You know, in these first words of a sermon, Jesus is very direct. He says, today, these words are fulfilled. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Implied in there is, okay, believe. It's a call to believe, Right? to see our need for him, the one who can free us. Again, there's a pause. He just has that introductory line in his sermon, and he pauses. He stops. And there's a lot of talking in the congregation. He just says one line in his sermon, <laughs> and there's a lot of talking. People are whispering to each other. Oh, wow. He speaks so graciously. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded from his mouth. They never heard anyone speaking like that so graciously because they're so used to people saying, la, 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 la. But here is one just one who speaks so graciously from his mouth. 
And they're saying, then they're saying, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? I remember seeing him playing on the street with the other boys, playing ball. I remember when he was helping his dad in their carpenter shop, making structures, making, helping build houses and cabinets. They're amazed. They're amazed. Like, this is, this is the boy who grew up with us. But he's more than just their homegrown boy. He's more than just a poster boy. They didn't get beyond that. They don't see that he's God in the flesh. They don't see he's the Messiah. They don't see he's the incarnation of the year of Jubilee. And Jesus sees that. Jesus perceives what's in our hearts. He sees everything. And you notice, at that point, his sermon changes. He begins to preach differently. Because they don't see their need for release. They don't see their need for forgiveness. They don't see their need. Uh, they don't see their own poorness, their own poverty. They don't see that they're oppressed by Satan. And so Jesus begins to preach differently. They're not hearing by faith. They're not seeing. They're not yielding. They're not surrendering to Christ and to his grace. And what Christ is doing now, he says, the reason why he changes his sermon, or you could say the reason why he preached differently now, is, is because he wants them to discover their own unbelief. He wants them to discover that through his preaching, what he wants to do is uncover the fact that they really don't believe in him. And that's what we see in verses 23 to 29, their rejection. What does Jesus see behind all the niceties, behind all the refined statements and comments? Jesus sees really hard hearts in the assembly. And the first thing he says to them is this. Surely you will say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. What, you, what we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. What's Jesus saying here? It seems like a strange proverb. Physician, heal yourself. But does Jesus need healing? What, what are they saying by this? What they're saying is, why can't you do the same miracles here in Nazareth what you did in Capernaum? Did you lose your power or something? Are you now powerless? Heal yourself of that powerlessness. Bring back the miracles. We want to see them. And Jesus knew, like some people today too, they just want to see Jesus as a poster boy. They just want to see the spectacular. They just want to see miracles. They're not drawn to him, but they want to see a magician. They want to see someone who's, they're drawn by power, signs and wonders, but not by the word. In other cities, they heard about it. They heard that Jesus was doing all kinds of miracles, all kinds of signs and wonders. They were thinking, Jesus does really nice tricks, doesn't he? Oh, he's a clever man. Nice tricks. And he shows his power through signs. How fascinating. Think of the third temptation of Satan. Remember the third temptation of Satan? Satan tempted Jesus to jump himself off from the cliff, or from the, sorry, from the top of the temple 
to be to show the spectacular. See, he didn't get, he didn't die, he didn't hurt. So many people are drawn to that. That's trickery. That's magic. And Jesus sees right through, and he says, he knows that he's not going to be doing those things among them. They're saying, why don't you come and do the, why didn't you come to Nazareth first and do the first miracles among us? Why did you have to go to Capernaum first in the surrounding area? They just wanted to see the spectacular and say, wow, look at our boy here. Look at what he can do. What a poster boy. They're not really interested in him. They're not interested in what he has to say. Not really. They're not interested in the Bible. And that's what he says to them in verse 24. He says, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. They didn't see beyond just, they didn't see beyond that. They didn't see him by faith. And what did Jesus do? He, in his sermon, uses two hard-hitting illustrations. You know, if they don't believe, they're just going to get mad. Right? It's either, either you, 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 you break down and weep because of this is who, the way we are, or you get angry. There's always one or two responses here. And that's what Jesus does here. He shows, he gives two illustrations, really hard-hitting, to show who they're like. Look at the first one in verse 25. He goes through their history. He says, that's how it was in the days of King Ahab. And he turns to that very familiar passage that they all knew about from 1 Kings 17. And he says, Jesus says, there were many widows. In other words, people, ladies who lost their husbands. There were many widows in Israel. But they didn't turn to the Lord. They didn't turn and go to Elijah. Elijah was not honored in Israel as a prophet. So Elijah then was sent to a heathen widow, a widow who did not believe in God, to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. He went outside of Israel, and there was salvation for that widow, but not for the widows in Israel. Oh, boy. It's very hard-hitting to Nazareth. Nazareth didn't want to hear that. You're supposed to say, we're blessed, Jesus, because you grew up with us. Well, Jesus gives another illustration, not only from Elijah's time, but also Elisha's time. He says there were a lot of lepers in Israel who were not cleansed or healed because Elisha was not honored as a prophet of the Lord in Israel. And Jesus next turns to 2 Kings 5 and explains that Elisha then went to a foreigner as well, went to somebody outside of Israel. Remember Naaman, the Syrian? He was a worshiper of other gods. Elisha went to him. There was salvation for him. Naaman believed. He broke down. He's the one who's brokenhearted. He's the one whom God ministers in his mercy. But such were not found in Israel. Jesus' point, Jubilee will pass by you too, Nazareth. You're going to miss out on it. If you don't turn to me in faith, your unbelief is like Israel in its darkest days during the time of Elijah and Elisha. And the truth is, sometimes the truth really, really hurts. And Jesus, of course, he knows the heart so perfectly, he knew exactly where to bring the point to. 
You're not believing. You need to come to faith. How does Nazareth respond to a sermon? They wept and broke down, right? Like in the days of Ezra, when they heard the law, they started weeping and crying and said, Lord, save us. No. Do they take it to heart? No. Do Christ's weedy words, his heavy blows from his words, break their hard heart so that now they want to offer their broken hearts to him? No. Are there any broken hearts among them that Christ can heal? We don't hear of any. There seems to be no broken hearts. How can they accept his mercy? How can they accept his grace? They turn around. Will they turn around and receive that salvation? The opposite happened. You know, there was that assembly. Notice the response, 28, 29. That all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with joy. Wrath. You can imagine the noise. All of a sudden there's a riot that breaks out in the congregation. They're angry, not at each other. They're angry at that home homegrown boy. Who does he think he is? Who does he think to tell us the way we are? They're angry. It was a kind of anger. You ever see straw go on fire? It goes whoosh. That's the sense of that word anger there. It just went whoosh. It just exploded. A riot suddenly breaks out in the congregation. Noise, commotion, arguments. There was no songs. There was no joy of singing. There was no debts forgiven, slaves set free. Captives they are. So blind. They showed it in their response. Oppressed. They're not confessing their sin, their debts. They're going, they're not going to him to Jesus for forgiveness and freedom and rest. Instead, they're so angry. What do they do? You see them piling up to the front and they're just grabbing him. They tear him, try to tear him out of from the, the pulpit where he's sitting. They drag him out of his chair. And there's a lot of hooting and hollering, and they drag him and they take him down the aisle take him out of the church or take him out of the synagogue. And remember, Nazareth is built on a, on a uh, high place. So around it, there was these cliffs and they're going to bring him to the cliff, to the edge of the cliff. And they're just going to throw him down. They don't need to hear a preacher like this who reminds them of their sinfulness. No way. They, they want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. Wow. See verse 21, they rose up, they thrust him out of the city, they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him over the cliff. Is that where it ends? See where unbelief ends? Tragic. Tragic. They reject his mercy. They reject his jubilee. They reject the freedom. How can they do that? Can they do that? Well, we would do the same thing except for the grace of God. The grace of God alone can overcome and change and bring us to that position where Christ wants us to. Notice here, 
though the triumph. Verse 30. When they reach the top of the hill, what happens? And then you see the majesty, the divine majesty of the Son of God, Jesus himself. Verse 30. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So there's these, these crowds of people, and they're thronging about him. But remember what God did through Moses? He parted the Red Sea. And who went through? Moses and the people of God. That's what Jesus does too. He parts the people. They step back, and he just walks through. They're looking for a sign. Here it is. This is it. You don't need to look for a miracle. Nazareth, you don't need to look for a sign. It's right here. They fall back, basically. They're powerless. And the powerful one just walks through like Israel through the Red Sea. Departed. Immediately, they stand back. They've lost their power. He opens a path and walks his way through the midst of them. No, two things here. They wanted a sign. They have one. He, the Messiah, the King, the Herald, the incarnation of the year of Jubilee, it's he who wins always. Unbelief always loses. But in faith, what does John say? Right? The victory of faith. Speaks of the victory of faith in Jesus. What does he do? He departs from them. Would the year of Jubilee of which Isaiah spoke, would that bypass them too? One day all will see Christ in his majesty. Everyone, when he returns from the, uh, from the clouds of glory, all who have not surrendered to this one in faith, what will happen? It will not be well. They will shudder. They will tremble before him. And that's the message that Jesus wishes to leave with Nazareth. Look, you're rejecting me, but look at your end. They had the sign. And second, the other thing here is, it wasn't Jesus' time to die. The hour was in his hands, not their hands. The hour of the cross. The greatest triumph of Jubilee would be in his death and resurrection. There's the greatest sign. There's the greatest triumph in Christ's own death and resurrection. Because what did he do? He triumphed. He triumphed over sin, death, and hell, and Satan in order to free us from their powers. That's what his death and resurrection signified. He sets free all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that was the message of Jesus. You believe on me. There's salvation. There's safety outside of me. There's no freedom. That's our society today, eh? There's no freedom. Why? Because when you're under sin, look at the manifestations of sin. We live in a culture of death. Look at our healthcare system. Abortion. Euthanasia. Suicide. Made. That's oppression. You see the, the oppression of sin, right? And this is Jesus. He sets forth the agenda. He sets forth the charter of freedom. That's what society needs. That's where health and life come back again, is in Jesus. He fulfilled jubilee. In him, we read that this morning, we have redemption. 
through his blood the forgiveness of sins. Or Galatians 4. Therefore, in Christ you are no longer a slave, but now you are a son. We can say also a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then you're an heir of God through Christ. Two things in, conclu in, in conclusion. First, what an empty life you see in the world. An empty life, brothers and sisters. Slavery is so real. Slavery to money. And look at all the sad results. Add to this the pressure, the anxieties, the addictions, under the oppressive weight of sin and brokenness that it brings to communities, brings to families, brings to friends. That is sometimes enormous. It's crushing. It's shattering. And the Lord wants us to bring, bring us to the point where we also see and admit that we're brokenhearted. There's no other place to go. There's no other place but to be where Jesus wants us to be, at his feet, seeking him, seeking his grace. Our God alone, in and by Christ, is the only source of our comfort to our bone-tired, world-weary culture. It is a tired culture out there. It's a tired culture. Second, second application here. Through the good news of Jesus Christ today, the faithful church becomes, you could say, the place of Christ's jubilee. That's where life is found. In the church. Right? And she sets forth through the gospel message the, the, uh, the blueprint for freedom for our society today. That's where the blueprint for freedom, true rest, true joy is found. The promise of forgiveness. And there's the promise of eternal life to all. And that's what we wish to share, the, the message of Jubilee, to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the defining issue. He's the defining point here. Debt's forgiven. Slaves set free. Jesus is our Jubilee. This scripture, Jesus says, is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen.